To all those listening, we have an important message for you. You are not alone. You're listening to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 10 of season 2. In today's episode, we sit down with psychotherapist Barak Hussein to discuss normalizing the conversation around mental health and what we can do to help those suffering in silence. Hey, it's Danielle and Zaina, and welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. You know, it's really interesting that we recorded this episode Prior to COVID ever happening, we did not know that we would all collectively experience this pandemic that's going around the entire world. It's very strange times, and I feel like it's now kind of taking a toll on us. And I don't want this to be a downer episode. I don't want it. I want it to be more of a resource, if that makes sense. I want people to know that there is help out there because I feel like we have reached the point of where, you know, anxiety is starting to settle in a little bit more. Maybe depression too is starting to come to the surface and everything like that especially for those who have never experienced this before which Zena you also researched that yeah so this week one of my assignments for work was to look into how therapists and counselors are adapting and so I spoke to a therapist on zoom and she was telling me that a lot of new people are reaching out to her and they're saying you know I've never had a mental health you know uh, problem I've always been you know quote unquote stable and now they're dealing with anxiety that they've never dealt with before And it's a new place for people, people who've never had to deal with depression and anxiety and unbelievable amount of stress are now stuck at home or safe at home, as we're saying, but they're left alone and they're left without the resources that they normally have to kind of like keep their mind occupied, to keep them in their happy place. And, and it's, I think even though we're collectively going through this, it's so easy to feel alone. The reason why we thought of having this episode where not only are we discussing mental illness, which our guest speaker, who her name is Barak Hussein, she is a licensed psychotherapist. She's known as the Muslim counselor on Instagram. Her Instagram account is actually Barak underscore H. She is somebody who actually sits down with patients who discusses their mental health with them, but also on the other side of it, discusses mental illness alongside of the conversation of suicide. So again, this is a trigger warning. We are talking about some heavy, heavy topics. And the reason being why I thought this episode was much needed in our community, because again, like I said, we recorded this a few months ago. So how can we solve a situation that we don't ever talk about? So I think it was really important that we did bring on somebody like Barak, who is licensed, who is an expert on this. And again, none of us are scholars. None of us are imams. None of us are, you know, professionals when it comes to 
you know, that aspect of how should a masjid or how should our imams or sheikhs handle this. I want to look at it as how can our community handle this? How can we combat this? How can we help those who are resorting, like I said, to self-harm? And I feel like if you are someone who is struggling, especially right now in this moment, don't think just because, you know, therapists, their offices are closed that you can't get the help you need. Telehealth is becoming a big thing right now. I mean, even going to a dermatologist can be done via Skype or Zoom or whatever. So if you need help, seek out therapy. Many, many insurances are covering telehealth. So, I mean, I know in Illinois, our governor made it um, so that every insurance has to accept virtual therapy, virtual appointments. So if you need that help, just know that it's there and it's available and it's a very quick Google search away. Wow, I honestly didn't know. Yeah. Because you guys, along uh, other than the pandemic that we're all going through, a lot of people are facing other things within their homes or other issues that are on the rise. Some of us are, you know, have jobs that might be on the line. There are a lot of people who I see that have been let go from their job. And that's that's hard, you guys. You got to realize like some people, this is their livelihood. Some people live paycheck to paycheck as well. And now their paychecks are being cut off. And yeah, you can say they can file for unemployment. But right now, I don't know what's going on with unemployment. You have 3 million people applying for this. So it's like, who knows what's going on? And these stimulus checks that supposedly we're going to be getting $1,000. What's $1,000 going to do? So there's a lot of stresses that are being added to you know, all the other stress that we've had before this pandemic that's going on. So I think this episode is really beneficial. I really hope that everybody listens to it and takes something away from it. This is supposed to be a resourceful episode, but Aka was very gracious in lending her expertise on this. We do talk about how can we help victims? What if you're a victim yourself? Why do we feel so helpless and hopeless sometimes? Where does this depression and anxiety come from? And we do know where self, why the reason of self-harm comes about is because of our mental illness. Sometimes we just feel like we need to suppress all these emotions so this episode um we're meant to break the barrier and break the boundaries and talk about these not so conventional topics i guess if you want to consider it that so i really really hope you guys take something away from this and i really hope that you guys stick around for our unfiltered afterthoughts as always and please check in on your friends Check in on your parents, call your grandparents, especially because they're the ones that are being affected. Alongside now, I mean, I guess everybody can be affected by COVID. So check in on everybody, be there for everyone and be there most importantly for yourself. You can't help others if you haven't helped yourself. You ready to dive in, Zaina? Let's do it. Thank you so much, Barak, for joining us today. This is a topic that we've been wanting to discuss for the longest on our podcast. I feel like suicide is something that we need to stop straying away from, and we need to definitely bring it to the forefront and see why this has been a rising epidemic in all communities and not just our community. But if you can just please describe yourself and talk about your profession and who you are before we jump into this topic. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum, sisters. Nice to connect with you to speak about this very important topic as well as other related topics to mental health. So as we said, uh, my name is Barak. I'm a psychotherapist from Ottawa, Canada. I work at a local university as a psychotherapist in a medical clinic. So I mostly work with students 
specifically international students and diverse backgrounds. Inshallah. So I've been doing this for around 11 years right now, alhamdulillah. And I went into this profession, ideally going into medicine, because that's what you're supposed to do in our culture. Either you're yes. an engineer <laughs> or you're nothing in between. But I quickly realized that my strengths are not in the sciences, even though I, I greatly admired and respected the sciences, especially coming from a background where my father holds a PhD in physics. So there's a lot of pressure there to excel in that background. Of course. I quickly realized that... I had a love for the arts, English, uh, language arts, psychology, sociology, the soft sciences, not necessarily the hard sciences. I also didn't have the brains for it. Alhamdulillah, university, I went into studying psychology as well as science to get into pre-medical or pre-medical studies to get into uh, medical school later. But alhamdulillah, again, like I said, I, I quickly realized that my marks were not good enough for that. Even though I was doing everything else you're supposed to get into medical school, I was very lucky to come across a program that allowed me to explore what it is that I'm actually good at, which is getting into psychotherapy. So alhamdulillah, I did my graduate studies in counseling, and I never looked back since that day when I had the epiphany when I researched that program, which is what a lot of students should do before getting into studies in university, college, or even grad school. Know what it is that you want to do, like in terms of a job, and then work your way backwards to see what are the degrees or what are the qualifications. And that's what I ended up doing that day when I went to find out information about counseling for other people in the job that I had as a student and quickly realized that's for me. So subhanAllah, how oh, God subhanAllah. got me. So educationally, that's how I got into it. But even before that, in high school, I was always one to listen to my friends' problems, cry with them, support them. And I would tell my mom, oh, you know, this person and that person, I feel for them. She said, you know, if you're going to get into this line of work, you got to toughen up your heart. Can't take on the people's emotions because I, I got very attached and, and connected to people's stories. So that was the path that I took. And in university, when I was studying, people in our community would ask, what are you studying? And I would say psychology. And so this was their answer. I come from an Iraqi background, so I'm going to translate this. But they would say things like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. It's crazy as those people who you'll be treating. This is the epitome of the stereotypes we have within our communities when it comes to psychology and mental health. And it stayed in my young mind till now because this is the same rhetoric that I hear nowadays. So alhamdulillah, I continued with my studies. I graduated and I was able to find work, not right away. And that's the challenge also our young folks experience these days. And I need to understand that finding a job is a full-time job in itself. And you may not necessarily find your career job right away. You may need to try different contract jobs or something somewhat related to build the experience before you do that. It takes three to five years. That's what the statistics show. I find I was right down in the statistic because two and a half, three, alhamdulillah, I found the job that I've been now. And it was quite a journey. That's another story that we can talk about another Definitely, day. Definitely, inshallah. Job searching can be quite challenging and it can really impact your self-esteem, your mental health as well. And it did do that for me. But alhamdulillah, when I ended up in, in the field that I'm in now and, and the career that I'm in now, I developed myself further, whether it was professionally, skill-based and whatnot. But over the years, I always did workshops, lectures, presentations. We didn't have social media back then. So I was already doing this public speaking. I was doing public speaking competitions as a child in university, sorry, in high school and built up to it. So this was something I was always comfortable doing, whether we're talking about Islam, talking about hijab, talking about injustice, poetry, emceeing events, whatever. That was always something that was natural for me to do. It was a natural transition, so to speak, when I got into mental health advocacy, because it was something 
I was already doing in my work, outside of work. It just meshed together. And again, it came with the stereotype. It just boggled my mind how people in our communities always had this type of idea when it came to mental health, especially considering that our own faith talks about wellness, talks about balance, talks about taking care of the self, the nafs. You see it in the Quran, you see it within the hadith and the traditions of the prophets. So it's there, but it's the culture and the taboos and the misconceptions that are outweighing what we already have in our faith from 1400 years ago that only recent science and psychology and research has shown to show it to be an actual science and, and a form of diagnosing, but also treating patients and clients. This is something we've had for 1400 years. And as a Muslim, that's something to be very proud of. Now quickly, back in my studies, again, this shows you the disconnect. My professor in my theories class was talking about Far East psychology and Far West. And I'm like, well, what about the middle? Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah. that's what you're gonna research. And so the, that's what my graduate studies was on, looking at Islamic theory, Islamic counseling theories and practice. And so I put together this research based on that. And that is also a driving force in the mental health advocacy work that I do in my work now, because this is something that I was able to implement in my clinical work using my own research that I did, because back then there was nothing out there, loosely translated books about spirituality and the self. We did not have concrete resources that we have now, whether it's mental health, Muslim mental health conferences, Muslim mental health journals, practitioners and discussions and, and lectures and TV shows and whatnot. So it's such a delight to see how far we've come in the last 10, 15 years when it comes to that. We still have a long way to go, especially when working around the stereotypes. But alhamdulillah, my experiences in the last few years have shown such a need for it within our communities, being asked as far as Australia, um, I'm in talks right now in in Africa, talking about doing mental health workshops for folks there. And this is the power of social media, how some folks saw live recordings of, of events that we're doing in Ottawa, and they contact me, so can you come in Australia? So it's been Australia, England, all over the States. And alhamdulillah, it's coming from our Muslim communities who are recognizing the need that we need to talk about this, starting the conversation on mental health, but also to dig deeper. Now in Ottawa, we started a group, myself and a few mental health advocates, based on, unfortunately, a few suicides that took place. This was around five years ago. And so we said, we need to do something. We need to talk about this. We need to help prevent this. And so through brainstorming and attending different conferences, we decided to develop our own mental health group called the Serenity Islamic Mental Health Awareness. So this initiative, alhamdulillah, it's been five years now, but it did start as a, as a reaction to the suicides that took place in our community. And I find it sad that it started off that way, but I'm also seeing the beauty in that, in the sense that we can do preventative work. We can do edu psychoeducational work to help people become more comfortable and become aware of what mental health is and how it impacts us on all levels. And so this is the topic that we're talking about today in terms of suicide. I can say that the last few years, we, we haven't had, not that we're aware of, we haven't had any, and I, I'm not crediting the group, but I can definitely say the push of, of educating people about mental health, and especially connecting it to an Islamic perspective, inshallah, that has done something to help people. Inshallah, and I think it has. I'm, it's very reassuring when I see people like you take charge in such a 
field that you don't see a lot of Muslims in. And like you were saying, we have a need for it. We're just not recognizing that need right now. A lot of us are kind of, a lot of us are now waking up to that idea of like mental health is something we need to focus on. It is something that we need to bring into our community. But a lot of the elderly generation, they're not really in touch with that part of our mind and a part of our health. And I think what you're doing right now is incredible. And I would credit the work that you're doing to the fact that you haven't seen suicides in that area. I think it's humongous. Yes, I really do. Dunya found the statistic back in June of 2018. The CDC said that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people between 15 and 34. But we don't know how it is affecting the Muslim population because we're not tracking those numbers. We're not tracking those numbers because it's not possible to track these numbers because a lot of people do not come out flat right and say, my um, son, my daughter, my mother, my niece, they committed suicide. We're not open about that because we do not have a community that allows I don't want to say our entire community but our community is still not at the point where they're comfortable in talking about these things especially talking about them in messages because again when you have to pray on these people and you have to t- and do a funeral prayer on them and a janazah, sometimes the, p- the the family withholds that information from the mosque and doesn't let them know that my kid my child committed suicide because there is no sympathy towards the family. There's absolutely no sympathy. So here's a family who just lost their child. And they lost a loved one. And they, they not only do they have to go back to their home without their loved one, but they also have a community who's shunning them for having a child or having a loved one that committed suicide. And that is so sad. And that's extremely sad. And it really breaks my heart that a family has to grieve on their own. What are, what are your thoughts about that, Barak, when it comes to our community and the conversations that we tend to not have in our community in regards to suicide? Suicide in itself is already confusing to begin with in terms of why and what are the reasons that causes a person to drive themselves to that point where they want to take their lives and no longer live. There's so many questions behind that. And I see that with clients that come see us who are dealing with a loss of a loved one and the confusion and and just or witnessing witnessing somebody taking their lives and surviving. And I I see that on their faces and how they struggle with that. Now, adding the layer of faith and adding the the layers of restriction in terms of it is haram. I'm using this uh, very loosely here, quoting it, that it's haram to take a life, much less your own. And all all of that talk within and the, the use of that language within our faith, it makes it even more confusing as to how and why this person would do that. Of course, like you said, the cloud of stigma around that family in terms of they're already grieving, but on top of it, they have to deal with the community judging them, judging them harshly and not allowing them to grieve the loss of somebody who was ill. That's essentially it when it comes down. Bottom line, the person was not well. Unfortunately, in our communities, we don't use that language. We say this person does not have faith. They're kafir. They're going to hell. This is the judgment that comes in the, as I call the haram police, right? They're, they're doing that and not necessarily showing compassion and understanding. It's all about judgment. And that's the biggest thing we have in, in mental health in general when it comes to that. People are afraid of marrying into other families who perhaps somebody committed suicide or there is a known mental illness within that family. As they are afraid they might catch it like a virus, right? or a sickness like that. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And so we have to work around demystifying these misconceptions and working on the taboos to making people feel comfortable. Because like you were saying, those folks who are dealing with somebody in their family 
who, who's taken their lives this way, they're already dealing with so much to begin with. Then you have the added layer of judgment from the community. It's, it's a very difficult situation to be in. And it's just sometimes I feel like our community almost disowns the person that committed suicide because they feel like once they committed suicide, they're no longer a Muslim. But it's like, who are we to even say that? Who are we to assume this? You don't know. You There are, like you said, Barak, this is a very heavy topic because there's so many layers to it. There's so much that we don't understand of what, I mean, there are a lot of common factors of what drives this person to this point. And we are going to discuss this in a bit. But how can we normalize this conversation as a community? And again, this isn't just in our community. There, it's, It spans across other communities. but when it comes to other communities, I think they're a little bit more vocal about it. We're still not there yet. We're still not, because I know there of a recent suicide that happened and we know it was a suicide, but the family just basically said this person died from a heart attack. And we know it was not a heart attack, but the family had to say that because they wanted to protect themselves from just the hate. So I feel like, we need to shift the community's perspective by focusing on, like you said, Islam. What does our religion mean? It means peace. It means justice. It means to be kind to one another. It means to have compassion. Are you truly a Muslim if you do not have compassion for your you know, brother or sister? And instead of us just leaving, labeling suicide as a sin and leaving it at that, what work have we done? We haven't done anything. We haven't prevented anything. We need to discuss this. So in what ways do you think that we can approach this situation and to normalize it and to teach people to just be kinder and less more of a hot on police stance? Well, what we're doing right now is a start, would you not say, is actually bringing it out in the open and talking about it within our communities. There needs to be more psychoeducational discussions like this, real talk, on real topics that impact us on so many levels. Start off with just to just to understand what mental health is, to talk about mental health, just like we talk about our physical health. And that's the work that I do through my medium of the, Mis the Muslim counselor, as well as what we do here in Ottawa through Serenity, is to just talk about it, right? Just having the conversation. And the workshops that I do in different communities is on that, just looking at what is mental health in the, in the Muslim community. And what we start off with in these discussions is to, to understand the definition of what mental health is, right? And it's all about balance, balancing your spirituality, your physical life, your financial, your work, your family, your friends. It's all about finding that optimal balance so that you can contribute meaningfully to society and to yourself and to your life. So when one of those things are off, what happens then? Then it could start impacting you in a way that could lead to a mental illness. So we need to understand the difference between mental health and mental illness. Mental health, we all have it. So when we understand that and normalize that we all have mental health, just like we have physical health, taking care of our sleeping, our eating, taking care of our vitamins, or if we take medication, if we've got diabetes or cardiovascular diseases, things like that, that's normal for us. If we get a cold, if we're sick, we break a leg, we go seek the medical assistance that we need. That's normal for us. There's nothing wrong with that, so to speak. In fact, we try to outdo each other within our communities in terms of, I know some of the, the older folks do that in terms of, I've got this, I've got that, and I take this medication for this and this. They almost show <laughs> yeah. off to each other. But subhanAllah, when it comes to mental health, silence. Yeah. Because people don't understand what it's all about. There's a taboo, and it goes back to that Iraqi saying that I was telling you about. People link it to being crazy. And that's a huge thing within our cultures. People fear that. People fear what they do not understand and know. And again, when it comes to mental health, they fear that because they do not understand it. Hence, what we do is we demystify it. We talk about it. We talk about the definitions of it. We talk about the real problems that we encounter in our communities. We talk about the language around it. So, for example, somebody who is dealing with sadness, they're lethargic, they don't 
have the same interests as they once did before in activities, whether it's school, extracurricular activities, sports, friends, and whatnot. They're just sleeping all the time, perhaps, or not sleeping, overeating, undersleeping. What does that sound like to you when I give you these words? Yeah, depression. Sounds like depression, right? Now, when you talk about it this way, we all understand, we've all felt these at some point or another. Sounds like symptoms of feeling depressed. Clinically, we call it depression, right? But that's the problem. That's the issue. It's the labeling. So when we describe the symptoms, we all connect and understand because we've experienced it in one form or another. Using the language that people understand is also another way to demystifying and understanding mental health. So when we use that language, people connect and understand they can relate to it. Now, that's the start. Then people start talking about, yeah, and I feel like this and this and I experience, because now it's like, okay, that's normal. We all get that. So then when we get into deeper into the discussions, we'll look at the actual challenges that we're experiencing in our communities. So I'll say big things like addictions. Let's go deeper into addictions, drugs, alcohol, pornography. Mm, That gets people sitting there like, oh, wow. But we all know it's happening. In fact, in fact, the Muslim Youth Helpline in the UK did a research uh, or survey rather two, two, three years ago, I believe. Yeah, around two years where their statistics showed that more women and Muslim women are becoming users of pornography than before. So when we discussed this, and actually I was doing a podcast with the Muslim Vibe with the ladies um, that work at... Uh, shout out to Muslim Vibe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we love right. them. Yeah, shout out Muslim Vibe and the Muslim Youth Helpline. They came across this conclusion, and it was related to the fact that sexual education was not being taught, either not taught or taught properly within the Muslim community. Hence, where do people find out and learn more about sex? Through that, yeah, through that medium. Exactly, through a very easily accessible medium that then becomes an addiction. So you see how these issues are all happening within our community. We talk about the different challenges, whether it's PTSD. Again, an interesting one is eating disorders, which has gotten pretty common within our communities as well yeah. for both men and women, mostly women. Body image issues, right? Self-esteem. Uh, depression, anxiety, these are the top two, right? Stress, we all deal with stress. Suicide, again, that's one of the top ones we have as well in terms of it's not coming out and not being reported because, again, of the stigma and the fear of the families, but it is happening. But also uh, a big one is abuse as well, domestic violence, abuse within the community. That's always been around. That seems like it's always going to be, unfortunately. But the implications there and the impact of abuse in the household and the domino effect towards children and the next generation is huge. And especially on a developing mind of a child, it becomes part of their development as they grow older. And then they come into our clinic and I see these children who have experienced trauma, whether witnessing it or feeling it. So when we talk about these things, we know it's all happening. You have people in the audience who know a relative or somebody who's being, who's been in a, an abusive situation, or they know somebody who's drinking. And this person could be somebody who's a, head of a mosque or a part of the administration and the board. So you have all this, or you have parents of children, again, who are into drugs or, you know, promiscuous and whatnot. So we all know these things are happening. It's all in the gossip and the hush hush. So when you bring it into a platform of mental health and you connect it and say, these things are happening because it's related to a mental illness, it's related to a lack of proper balanced mental health, then you're making the connection. Then you bring it from an Islamic perspective which is also what we try to do in these uh, discussions and workshops, where we talk about balance, where we talk about how 
to create a wellness within yourself, within an atmosphere of wellness. So when we talk about it from that perspective and you use eyes from the Quran, you use a hadith from the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt and the Sunnah and the tradition, people start making connections and say, ah, okay, I get it. You become more comfortable with the topic. Once people become more comfortable, they become ambassadors for mental health. That way they can reach out to folks whether it's family or they know how to do an intervention or know how to connect or talk to somebody, there's also something we discuss in those workshops, then they take that out to help other people, inshallah. So that's how it spreads, the ripple effect. You educate a few people, then they can take it on. They feel that they've, okay, yeah, I can, I can deal with this now. It's not as scary as I once thought, especially if my own religion is teaching me about how to take care of myself. This is the approach I use, and I found it's been really impactful and helpful, especially when communities ask you to come back to do more work with them, where they reach out to you. After every presentation you do, I guarantee you, I have tons of people either come up to us or they send me private messages, which is a beautiful sign that they say, you know what, there's something I need to work on. There's something I need to work on. Now, I, I can't take them on because I don't do private practice right now, but I then refer them off to colleagues who I know who do private practice. So this is how you start doing that, you know? You made so many valid points, Barak, in this short snippet right now that really opened our eyes because it's true. I feel like everybody strays away from mental health because they do not know how to connect it back to our faith, faith which yeah. it's already found in our faith. It's what we've been taught. But it's, I think it's just the way that we've translated the Quran over the years and it's coming from our elders. So I want to give our elders the benefit of the doubt because maybe you can also attest to this. They didn't have the resources that we have today. We have so much more re research done about mental health and mental illness and where it stems from and where it's coming from and how it affects, how it causes self-harm and suicide. I don't think our elders had that. What they had is their Quran. But again, the Quran did have all these answers, but the way they translated it was differently. Yeah. The way I know my parents and my elders and my grandparents translated the Quran and when it came to suicide it was that's it it's a sin done deal that's the worst thing you could do you're going straight to hellfire yeah what are your thoughts on that again us three are not scholars but in our own way I know you've discussed this with other uh, other colleagues of yours but in regards to the Quran and how we should translate suicide when it comes to how it was transcribed for us in the verses that were provided for us Again, you said it beautifully, we're not scholars, and especially of exegesis, which is interpretation and translation of the Quran. And something I, I explicitly, clearly say whenever I do speak, and I don't have the classic traditional training in Islamic studies, but I have worked with a lot of sheikhs, scholars, alimas, people from that background over the years. And this is definitely a discussion that we've had, especially when you have Muslim clients or even clients of different faiths, by the way, who've come. And, and express that. And they say, you know, I'm afraid I will go to hell if I do this. And we'll have the discussion about God in the session. We'll have the discussion of their fears, which always comes a, a, along around family as well. They don't want to hurt their family. They're afraid. Because some, even some clients I've come across, they talk about how when they have lost somebody, how it impacts them. And it's devastating. So all of this is a discussion I bring with the scholars and say, so ABC, you know, this, this, and this, how, what's, what is up with that? How do we approach this subject? Because it's, it's very difficult. It's similar to the topic of homosexuality. We've had to deal with it as Muslims over the last few years, right? What is our approach upon it without sounding homophobic? Of course. Right? Because the backlash is that on us as well, right? Because Islam says ABC, and then people interpret it as that, and then we become the haram police, and we become the, the phobic everything. And so the same attitude comes, I believe, with suicidality, because it's very clear what a religion says on taking a life, whether it's yours or somebody else's. So the discussion with the scholars, again, this is the scholars, not me, what they have 
told me is that the person is ill. This was missing perhaps before in the discussion in our parents' generation because of the lack of awareness and the depth of understanding of what mental health is and how it impacts us. This is the discussion that I see now within the scholarly world is the understanding that somebody is ill. They are not all there. A suicidal person, the, the, the thoughts, the patterns that occurs in their mind is very different than somebody who is normal. So when I say normal, I mean happy, everyday, go-lucky type of person living their lives who think about death but not contemplating taking their own death, their lives, right? So the mind, the thoughts, the, the thought patterns are very different. And this person is categorized in the category of somebody who's not well, who's not all there, who is ill. It is an illness. So this becomes another avenue of discussion. And then I do recommend perhaps having a discussion with a sheikh on this to get the, the Islamic interpretation. And like you said, you're probably going to get different interpretations from different sects, different schools of thoughts, different personal mm -hmm. research on the topic of different scholars around it. It's still very controversial still. But this does not help the grieving family or comforts them when we, again, go into judgment mode. And... It's very delicate as well. This is my understanding of what I've gotten from the chefs, is that the, the ones at least that I've spoken to and have the element of compassion in their, in their discussion and their language that this person is recognized as ill. I'm glad you brought up the word judgment because... Yes, again, as a community, the judging is supposed to be left to Allah. As cliche exactly. as that sounds, this is what our religion also prescribes. If you want to be following our, the Quran and following the religion and saying the suicide is a sin, but it also says that the judging is left to Allah. So I think that's something as a community we need to also stray be away from. Of, yeah. Who are we to judge others? You do not want this to also happen in your own family. So be compassionate and kind when it comes to other families because you don't even know what your own children are going through. You don't even know what your own parents that's are going through. Suicide, self-harm does not only affect the youth, it also affects our elders because our elders have so much trauma within their own bodies and again they came from a generation without the research being done yeah and I'm, I'm so happy people are now putting mental health into a factor because I was able to go to Islamic school most of my life and we talked about suicide being just your one way ticket to hell and never was mental health even discussed in our classroom it was never brought up so I'm glad people are starting to make that connection and hopefully they're teaching the younger gen generation that as well they're not passing along you know if you have suicide thoughts you're going to hell because obviously that's not the case. I want to commend our youth who are going through that path of becoming a Muslim therapist or becoming a counselor mm -hmm. or even in the same field as you, mashallah, like a psychotherapist. That's that's incredible. We need more people like exactly, you. Exactly. Yeah. Bless you. And alhamdulillah, you know, we are seeing that. I see a lot of uh, young folks here in the last 10 years who reach out and say, oh, you know, what did you do? How did you get to where you have gone? We want to study this, too. And, and that was just so beautiful seeing that. And I see them now doing counseling, career counseling, and, and Muslim women with hijab. So I find that really empowering as well as they're out there doing this kind of work. I just wanted to go back quickly to something interesting that you both mentioned, having suicidal thoughts as well as acting. There's a difference between the two. Why are Muslims committing suicide? I know you said they're helpless and hopeless, and I want you to be able to break this down for us because, Mashallah, you do it so well, and you allow us to get into the minds of those who have reached that point, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely, let's talk about it. So there is a difference between, obviously, having a thought and acting upon the thought. Uh, we not all have had thoughts of, oh, this is such a bad day, I wish I wasn't alive. You know, yeah. I wish I wasn't here. Like, we've all had these dramatic thoughts at times. Sometimes things can be so overwhelming 
that you have that thought that comes into your head. It's acting upon it that is different than having the thought. We can all feel overwhelmed and feeling like, oh, I'm helpless. You know, I, I can't do anything about the situation that is forced upon me. And everybody's going to experience that differently. Everybody has their own meter and level of handling stress as well and dealing with burdens, right? Some of us are a little bit more tougher than others or have more resilience, so to speak, not necessarily tougher, but just have more resilience because of life experiences or personality or genetics. All of that has uh, as the impact. I mean, you just need to look at some twins sometimes and they've grown up in the same environment. They've gotten the same factors of life around them. Yet you notice there's a huge difference between them. So you apply that concept to all of us. We're all going to experience it and deal with situations differently, right? So again, coming back to the challenges that we experience and how we deal with them, what thoughts go into our head and how we actually approach to solve the issue that is causing us the stress. That's very individual. Our faith does give us guidelines and rituals and amal, like, um, again, rituals to, to, to help with the preventative manner, but we don't see it that way. We see it as, oh, we just have to do it because it's there. But there's such a healing power, and I know we're going to talk about that more in a bit, to, to helping us with these challenges. So why? question is, why are, are Muslims doing this? Again, back to the idea of feeling helpless. And so this is a situation where there's, I'm, I'm just really remembering um, some of my clients when, they, when they're sitting in front of you and there's such a heaviness in the room and the atmosphere is, is you start feeling their helplessness. You're at a loss of words at times too. And so just being there sometimes and being supportive can go a long way in sharing that space with that someone who is struggling that they feel that somebody's listening to them, somebody's sitting with them, even though they're not really solving the issue at hand. But just having that compassion can go a long way to helping somebody, right? So we go from feeling helpless about the situation, but also looking at perhaps different solutions or different strategies, coping mechanisms, in terms of going from feeling they have nothing to live for to wanting to live for something or having something to live for. So that helplessness is also from, sorry, helplessness is also from the hopelessness part, right? So we try to find hope from being helpless to saying, yeah, you know what, actually, no, I, I am not that helpless. I do have the ability to do ABC. So enabling the person to seeing that they do have the ability to get out of this place of darkness, so coming from that darkness to the light, so to speak, the analogy, and that's used in the Quran as well, right? So coming from darkness to light. So it's a step-by-step -step process of helping clients get out of that. And it's not a one-time thing. Although sometimes in crisis counseling, you have somebody comes in and they say, you know, they want to end their lives. And then there's protocol for that. And there's also different steps and, and ways of dealing with that at the clinical level. So it's really important to understand that point of despair that that person is at, it's trying to get them out of that place, that dark place, to seeing the goodness in life around them. Perhaps there are people that they truly love that they don't want to cause sadness for. Some folks feel that they don't have anybody, that, that they're completely at that, that point in life where they are not loved. And that's a big thing. I've seen that a lot in folks where they feel perhaps that they're not loved. One client ended up uh, finding somebody who cared for him, a relationship, basically. And it took him out of that deep depression, which shows you how sometimes love can be such an important part of the healing process. 
it all comes back down to that as well. We're human beings that crave that social interactions with people, no matter how introverted or alone we like to be. We need that touch, that spiritual touch, that emotional touch, that physical touch. Our different languages of love here, whether it's spending time, gifting, touching, all of that, it comes into play here at the core level. For example, that young man that I saw, who was a night and day difference, uh, you know, after sessions where he ended up finding somebody to be with. SubhanAllah, how that impacted him at the core. So stories like that, when you go step by step through the process with somebody coming from that place of feeling helpless, feeling that there's no hope. And from an Islamic perspective, we always say there's hope. Of course. We never lose hope, especially when we're connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, during times of illnesses in a mental state, our faith is not as strong. Yes, the connection is not as strong not just with God, but anything around us, with people, with the activities that we're involved with, you just don't have the energy to deal with it. You could care less in that moment. It doesn't mean you're a kafir. It doesn't mean you're um, a, not a mu'min. It just means that you're somebody who's not dealing with something very well. It means that you need help, but it also means that there is help. From that darkness, there is light. And then we see that. You go through the process of looking at what is there to live for, who is there to live for, you know, what are the things to look forward to, things like that. And then you slowly build on that inside in the process of it, in the therapeutic process. And alhamdulillah, for the most part, I've seen in my 11 years of doing this is that people can come out of it with the right supports if only they go and ask for it, though. If only they're brought in. We have people who are brought in because they've attempted or their friends are concerned or their families are concerned. Sometimes it's very extreme like that. Sometimes we have clients who say, and I always, we ask, you know, are you going to hurt yourself if you're going to leave the uh, our office right now? And some say, yeah, I think I will. So this is where we take the next step where we have to send them to the emergency, right? And, and most of the time they're willing to go. They want to go. I had one client a few years ago tell me it was the best thing that I did. The three weeks that I stayed in emergency, I got to really see folks who are really in a, in a, in a very sad, difficult place. I'm not that person, even though I had thoughts of taking my life. I'm not that person. That was a real awakener for this young man. And it changed his perspective as well. So we all experience it, whether it's, oh, I wish I wasn't alive or I wish I didn't have to deal with it, to actually wanting to take that's the next level where you're in such a dark place where you don't have any hope in that moment, that that's when it comes in. When you've lost all hope, that's when it comes in. And this is the part in our faith where we really try to work with that or anybody of a faith background is working on building that hope. That was a lot to take yeah. in. It was very emotional. Barak, you're incredible because I feel like you were speaking to somebody, whoever's listening, that is going through this right now. Yeah. It's as if you were speaking straight to them. And I'm thankful that you were that you did that, that you just basically took the mic and you're speaking to somebody who is going through this. And you mentioned the point of us. The first step is acknowledging this person and acknowledging of what of what they're going through and what they're feeling. I think we disregard a lot of people's feelings. We brush them off. We tell them you'll be fine. It could be worse. It could be this. It could be that. All they want compare oh this person has it worse or it could have yes. been this should have could have would have validation validating acknowledging the person's difficulty in that moment no matter how big or no matter how small it is because we're auto we go into automatic judgment mode right and that, that that's that cannot happen in that moment no matter how minute it may seem for you in that per that delicate moment when that person is feeling helpless and they're losing hope we have to work on building that hope and for those who are listening to this right now, know that you are not alone. 
know that there are people who truly care for you, no matter how difficult the situation that you are in right now. There are people who care for you to live, who care for you to succeed, who care for you to contribute to your life and to others around you. Don't ever feel that you need to take your life, that you are worthless. You are not. You are not. No matter how difficult your situation is, no matter how many people have told you that you are worthless or have abused you or hurt you and bullied you and brought you down, I don't know who you are, but I truly do care for you. And that's part of the reasons that I got into this work to begin with. Honestly, Barak, that's amazing because it brings me back to even just you discussing like there's a cause, there's a root cause for this suicide, this the self-harm that need to, to harm yourself. Because yes, we've all had our moments of being overwhelmed and like, oh, I just wish I can just end this life. I'm over it. You know, yeah. we say we're over it, but there's somebody out there saying, I really want to be over it. And it's it's hard. There are different reasons. There could be this person could be in a toxic family um, relationship, a toxic family situation. They could have, like you said, mental health or mental illness. There's also a cultural conflict bullying all this stuff so these seeds of trauma are planted within their bodies are you going to be somebody that's watering these seeds within their bodies or are you going to be somebody that's going to help them lead them to somewhere better a different garden not the garden of trauma but a garden of where they do see that hope that you're talking about but that hope that you're trying to lead them to that's and it's so perfectly said and i think yeah. it's exactly what yeah. was basically saying like it, it just opened my eyes to like the effects our words can have on somebody i cannot believe that our words hold so much weight that you your words can either allow somebody to take that, take their life or give them hope to stay living. The, the public situation that you, that you, you mentioned uh, something that just reminded me of that system. By the way, it's such a beautiful analogy, what you described right now and the impact of what people can say. This was a recent, I think it was a, a less than a year ago, a young nine-year-old Syrian refugee took her life that, yeah. because people told her, bullying her, telling her you are ugly, you are worthless, go kill yourself. I'm sure you've heard that expression. That actually impacted this young girl to go do that. It was devastating. It's just old as my daughter. It, it just it just wrecked me. I was in tears and just crying because of how heartless people can be and the words that they can say and how they can push somebody who's already experienced so much in their lives and their young lives. And then this can be just the thing that can push them over the edge. doesn't mean that this young girl is not of somebody of faith or is a kafir or is a, uh, not a mu'mina. She's an innocent soul who had seen so much trauma in her young, beautiful life, but she felt it was no longer beautiful. It wasn't beautiful. It was so much ugliness. She couldn't handle the pain of it anymore. And this is exactly what happens. To somebody, this is what we've heard from people who've attempted. This is what I've heard from people who've witnessed it, and friends and family of those of those who have completed the suicide. We don't talk about it being a, a successful. The right term is a completion of it, right? And those who have where the completion did not take place, so to speak, where they survived, they talk about that. They talk about the point of desperation that they're at, where they have lost the hope, where there's so much pain. So this leads me to to self harm cutting and, and other forms of bodily harm. And the discussion that I've had with folks who engage in self-harm, not necessarily to end their lives, but it could lead to that potentially, right? Because they no longer feel emotion. They don't feel pain or joy. So they cut or they inflict bodily pain as a way to feel, which is very fascinating and interesting. 
as a way to feel because they're numb from, let's say, the sexual traumas that they've experienced or sexual assault or abuse or bullying or just the, the challenges that they experience that is so heavy on their soul that they inflict physical bodily harm on their body to feel again. It, it breaks the heart that this is what people go to, to these types of lengths to feel again, feel something. So this is also a way that people cope and deal with the challenges as well, which is, uh, I could see from your faces here, that is, wow. Like it, it, as a counselor, yeah, as a counselor sitting in front of somebody who describes this, I, I feel the heaviness of it. So imagine somebody who's not dealing with this all the time, like I could see it on your face. Yeah. And so this, this again, comes back to the education part of teaching people, getting into the minds and understanding what people are going through, because it's not as simple as this person just took their lives, right? So we have to teach people not only demystify mental health and illnesses, but also look at how to help people deal with problems, right? Yeah. We all have stress. We all have difficult situations in our lives. Some, again, more than others, depending what home you live in, what upbringing, your surroundings, your financial situation, what part of the world that you live in. And like, for example, me from Iraq, my cousins, my young cousins, the challenges they experienced, my friends who, who are right now in protests in Iraq against a corrupt government, for example, daily, they are putting themselves on the line out there. Yes, they're peaceful protests. However, there are people being killed. Just a few days ago, one of my close friends in Iraq posted about his friend being shot and killed right in front of them. So sad. And I was shocked. I called him up crying, sent him messages, just completely overwhelmed. This is the kind of stress they have to live with over there, right? They have to see that in front of them. Yet these people, despite how challenging their political situation is and the, the, the impending potential wars in the region, Right. And, you know, this is a Palestinian, uh, my sister, right. We, we all know this. We all have some kind of intergenerational trauma or connection to our families back home that we may be oblivious here living in our lives. But imagine the stressors they have to deal with. They don't think about the things that we think about here in this part of the world. They think about survival over there. So they don't have time to think about mental illnesses. But you know what? They are infused with it with the trauma they experience, the day-to-day stressors of leaving the house, not knowing if they're coming back, just like my friends the other day. They all left and every day he's posting about his friend, talking as though he's talking to him. This is how he's coping and dealing with that. So again, to tie this back to how we deal with our issues, every part of the world that we live in, every situation that we live in, is gonna impact us differently. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. How are you gonna deal with it? How are you gonna use your skills of resilience to manage these stressors? We all, again, have different thresholds. So you have to learn what is your stress print. And I always talk about that. It is as basic as that. Understanding how you cope with the challenges, understanding how stress impacts you, whether, again, overeating, undereating, oversleeping, undersleeping, you know, you get more angry or you get quiet, how you deal with people around you when you're stressed. You have to understand. Isn't this what Allah teaches us in the Quran? Know yourself. Know yourself. Self-awareness. Yes, it's about awareness, right? Self-reflection awareness. Know how stress impacts you. Know how you deal with the situation around you. Learn coping strategies. Learn how to be resilient. Learn how to manage these stressors. Because when you don't take care of stress, which is physiologically stress hormones released into your system, 
cortisol. And if you don't take care of that, then it will impact you in different ways, whether it's emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, behaviorally, mentally. All right. So you have to know what, how it impacts you. Once you know that, then you know how to manage it better. Then you know how to deal with the situation because the excess of the stress hormones will then potentially could lead to mental illnesses, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, right? So the shakes, sweats, constant thoughts racing in your mind, just constantly worried, right? That can lead to physical responses of a panic attack. If that's not taken care of, it can lead to generalized anxiety disorder or other anxieties. So it comes back down to learning your, about your stress response, learning what causes you stress from the outside environment and what could be people that you live with as well, which becomes really challenging in our homes, yes. right? The very people that we live with are causing us this uh, distress. So we have to learn how, and I teach people this, you are living in an environment where you have to disengage, not emotionally get engaged. So you become aware of the environment, the people, you know what causes you stress, you know this person upsets you, you know this, this and that. So you have to learn how to disengage your, your emotions. So taking care of yourself. So I actually do this in workshops or in clients. So we do this hand movement. You go, who are listening, put one hand over your heart. I'm gonna do it. Too. And one in front of you. Yeah, try it with me. And one in front of you as though you're telling somebody to stop. So you push away. You push the hand away and then the other hand stays close to your heart protective mode, right? Yeah. You're taking care of yourself while you're pushing the people, the negativity away. So you don't engage yourself. You become aware and you put that barrier. Yeah. It's a reminder that your heart is really important. So do not allow anything to affect it. Yeah. Yes. Giving self-care. This is self-care, mm -hmm. self-love. This is therapeutic self-care is learning your boundaries, knowing how to say no. And also, you can't say that, obviously, to your Muslim parents, you know, in the household. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to try. But here is where you're still setting the boundaries for yourself, where you tell yourself, I'm not emotionally engaging, right? So you go like this and you push away the hand and the hand comes close to your to your heart. Yeah, it's like one hand's like almost like a stop sign and the other hand is on your heart for those who are listening. You're yeah, boundaries. And also you're reminding yourself, like we said, don't engage. Yes. You're not engaging yourself. And that touch to the heart here, the chest is so comforting and beautiful. And I actually do that in sessions with people, especially when we're to give, remind yourself to give yourself that love, that inner part of yourself, that inner child, that the part of you that is feeling helpless and is on the point of despair and, and loss of hope. So we give that hope back by, by building it up like that. So then the next part, what I do then is lifting your hands almost in supplication. Palms up, yeah, as if you're making dua, yeah. Take your worries and give them to him and lift yes. it up. Wow, yeah. So all the worries that are weighing you down, so to speak. So symbolically, well, like weighing you down, lift Just it up. Just lift them up. It really feels yeah. like a weight is lifted. It really is. Yeah. So lifting it up and letting it go. So even the imagery of it is very powerful. I use a lot of imagery, whether it's physical with your hands like that, but also uh, visualization, which is also another technique, is by envisioning, doing, acting and envisioning, right? So what was the first movement again? Pushing away and loving and giving love and compassion to your heart and pushing, disengaging, not emotionally engaging, taking your worries and putting your hands in the form of supplication and lifting it up to God, the universe, or however you connect with the universe. And then say to yourself, let him worry about it. He tells us to do that, right? He tells us to do that, subhanAllah. So this is how we could use that. And by the way, this is even something you use with clients of different backgrounds, not necessarily just Muslims. We understand the language here disengage, give love, support, set boundaries, 
Don't get yourself emotionally engaged in the situation. Lift it up. Let it out to the universe. Let the universe, let God, however you perceive, whatever your ideas of faith and whatnot, let that take care of it. Let him worry about it. You focus on what you need to do right now, which is, and then the basics, taking care of your eating, taking care of your sleep, your exercise, and getting rid of toxicity around you. These are the basics that we work on. And yes, they have to be sometimes handheld. You have to hold somebody's hands in, in an imagery form, right? And guiding them step by step to get out of that place of darkness, back into the place of hope where they can feed themselves, where they can get some sleep. You put the proper food in your body. It has a huge impact on your energy, the way you feel, the way you think, and the way you act. So sometimes that's missing. This person could have been drinking for days, only water, not eating. How is that going to make them feel? very, very lethargic, no energy, but really bad about themselves. Or if they're just stuffing themselves with pizza and donuts, for example, that's the other opposite where they feel really bad and just physically don't feel well with that junk food in their system. So we go to the basics again of going out of that place of darkness, coming out of it, coming to that place of light where you're slowly taking control of things that you feel you don't have control over. That's another concept, locus of control. That's something we work on a lot in therapy. We all need that. We all think we're in control. We all feel like we need to be in control of things. Ultimately, from an Islamic perspective, who is in control? It's Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in when we work on the therapy within that language is we have to incorporate it back in. That's also something if the client wants that. So you give them the choice. Right. You have somebody who could be a Muslim background who is not interested in using that language or that's not important to them, even though they are Muslim. So you have to learn. You have to know right away and know how to work with a client like that. But if you have somebody who's feeling very guilty, who's feeling very low on the fact that they are committing haram, I use that again, quote unquote. So you work with the language they're comfortable with. And I find faith is very powerful no matter what faith background you have, it's very powerful in the process of therapy. And it's fascinating as well to see that person coming out of that darkness, right? So there's a lot around that. I think we just had a whole session ourselves here. (laughs) We did. I love it. We went from emotional to like being enlightened to just, yeah, mashallah. I love it. It's very powerful. And and especially when you use, again, the basic concepts that we have in our faith. One of my favorite eyes of the Quran is Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim from Surah Al-Ra'd, the thunder. Verily, with the remembrance of God, do hearts find peace, tranquility, serenity. That for me is the epitome right there, okay, of how you find that inner peace with the remembrance of God, reflection. What does that remembrance mean? So this is me interpreting, sorry. (laughs) It's okay. Psychotherapeutic perspective in terms of what does that remembrance and reflection mean? For me, that means everything within therapy, everything within self-care, everything with connecting yourself spiritually. That's how you find that peace right there. And the prophet himself, peace be upon him and his family says, prevention is better than the cure. Prevention again. What does prevention mean? Everything from the physical, the spiritual, the mental right there. So it's all there within our faith. If only we reflect, and this is also a saying by uh, Imam Ali, السلام, where he talks about you're a whole universe. I'm paraphrasing here. You're a whole universe within yourself. If only you reflect, you have the power to change that. That gives you so much hope when you read this, and especially somebody of a faith background who has 
felt that they've lost hope, and especially when they've had dark thoughts of ending their lives, especially when they've had thoughts of self-harm, we have the tools and we have the inspiration to be able to get us out of that place. If only we reflect, if only we use the resources around us, if we only don't let judgment and the thoughts of other people bog us down and prevent us from getting to that support. Yeah, and I feel like it all goes back to the lack of education, that hopelessness, that helplessness. We don't, we feel like we're alone. We're the only ones going through that. We don't realize that everyone around us is going through something that puts them in that state of mind. But because we're not talking about it openly, we're struggling with our internal selves. We're not sharing what's going on. We're not seeking help from therapists or the mosque or friends and family around us because we feel ashamed because we're not talking about that. Yeah. And I want to thank you, Barak, for going through that step by step because I'm I'm hoping the listeners who are listening are people that really want to get out of this rut. Mm-hmm. And it, um, you might not be someone as severe as who wants to take their life, but yeah, it, it, you know, you might be approaching that if you're not seeking guidance, if you're not helping yourself. So these exercises were wonderful. Yeah, I'm telling you, just putting your palms up to the air as if you're doing a diet and you're lifting your worries. I literally felt like I was honestly lifting something. It's all about the visual pre- representation, like you said. But I also want to thank you for talking about setting boundaries when it comes to your loved ones, because a lot of the DMs that we get, Zaina, is like, well, what if the toxic person in my life is my own parents or my own siblings or my, or, yeah. you know, and yeah, what do you do? Because you can't just be like, oh, mom and dad, I'm leaving. Bye. You can't do that. And yeah. culturally, we can't do that. So what do you do? So thank you for sharing that tidbit right there, because that's very helpful. I think that's something that we can all practice. You know what I mean? Even if we are not in toxic households, but even sometimes friendships Workplaces, or co-workers yeah. or something like that, let's disengage rather than emotionally engage and get ourselves fired up. And that's exactly. what stresses us. But I think it's beautiful how this whole conversation led to the fact that there is a connection between mental health and suicide. Suicide doesn't just appear in somebody's mind overnight and somebody decides that that's it. I want to end my life. No, there's a lot of seeds planted within us. And sometimes there could be good seeds. And sometimes there are such a thing as like the bad seeds that we talked about, seeds of trauma. And I just, I can't thank you enough for bringing all these things to light. And I can't thank you enough for all the work that you do and for explaining what you do in your office and how you help your clients. How about just to end it on our, like on this note, how can we help somebody that's in our life that we might assume that, you know, they're down and out, they're a little depressed. I know we're not guidance counselors, we're not Muslim therapists, but at the same time, we're, we're still a tool that they could still use, that we could be of help to our fellow sisters and brothers in our community in some way. Really. Bless you for asking. That's so important. You know, once you delve into understanding mental health, getting into the deeper issues of, you know, why or how does a person get there? Now the question is, how do you support and help them? Right? So if you do see somebody who is struggling, it's really important to reach out to them. Even if they're saying, leave me alone, or I don't feel like it, make the effort, call, meet, go. Don't just say, Hey, what's up? How's it going? That's the culture we live in now, right? Hey, what's up? Or the texting culture. No, pick up the phone. Go meet for coffee. Go take them out. Go do something. You know, just sitting with somebody, right? That that goes a long way. Knowing who to send, uh, like if people contact you and say they're struggling with this, find out where they are and see if there's somebody of of a faith-based background that they can go to to talk to. Start with your medical doctor as well. Go get an assessment done to see what you're struggling with. And that way they can refer you to the appropriate supports. People are constantly messaging me asking for counseling. And I say, okay, where are you located? And then if if I know where they're located, then I will refer them. There's also a wonderful counselor in the States. Her name is Anissa Diab. She does online counseling. And she's my go-to person that I send folks to all the time because she she does the online 
uh, counseling. Yes. There's Nasiha uh, Muslim Youth Helpline. They're no longer called Muslim Youth Helpline. It's Youth Helpline for everybody because it just shows you people faiths are using the support, using a Muslim support, which is beautiful, incredible. Beautiful. So the, these are the go-tos in terms of kind of resources and referrals. But if it's somebody, a friend or somebody face-to-face, and it takes a little bit more effort than to, here, go to this person or use this resource, right? So there is also something that I highly recommend for people who are interested in getting a little bit more in terms of skills, because I, what I tell you is things that people train years for. Yes. <laughs> what I tell you is not going to be the advice, but it's it's just a starter, right? I highly recommend people to get mental health first aid training. This is just like first aid training. So you go for a course by a trained professional who gives you the one-on-one on how to support somebody in a situation, that crisis situation, or just overall. So it's just like first aid. It doesn't make you a doctor or paramedic. But it gives you the basic one-on-one. If you see somebody choking, you know what to do or give the Heimlich maneuver or breathe. So same thing with mental health, first aid. There's also another program called the ASSIST program. This is excellent in terms of getting, this is for suicide training. Again, it does not make you an eMERGE uh, therapist or a psychiatrist or crisis counselor, but it gives you the basic one-on-one how to talk to somebody when they are in that difficult dark place and how to kind of get to, all right, let's go get support and help now. So these are things I highly recommend folks who are interested to get this basic training. It's great to have on a resume as well, but it's also a good a confidence booster for you to, to understand. And I highly recommend every center, every mosque within our communities, offer these training to your community members, especially the sheikhs. Yes. They are a wonderful source of knowledge, but they don't have the clinical training to do counseling with people unless they've taken courses and whatnot. And nowadays in the houses and the Islamic institutes and whatnot, it's moving towards that because of the acknowledgement and the awareness that these problems in our communities are also mental health issues that they need to have the basic training for. So I love, I love the training that is starting out there for the imams and the sheikhs because they are the frontline workers in our centers, so to speak. Of course. Right? They're the frontline workers. Unless you have centers like the Jafari Village in Toronto, mashallah, and shout out to them. I work with them a lot in terms of projects and things like that. They actually have a counseling center in their mosque. How beautiful wow, is that? Now the flip side of that is the confidentiality taboos within our community. People are always afraid, well, if I go to somebody within the community, community. I hear this all the time. Oh, they're going to know our secrets. They're going to share it. That's not the case. This is something when you have a trained mental health professional, we are liable just like lawyers and doctors. Yes. Yeah. Huge ethics boards behind us. So that's very important for clients within our communities to know that, right? So if you do have a trained professional counselor within your center, I highly recommend you go there. If not, there are people outside as well. But I do recommend that our centers offer these mental health workshops, which is what I'm also offering for our communities. And like I said, we've gone as far as Australia to do this, to down in Orlando, New York, all over Canada here, and looking forward to more collaborations as well. Because this is where we start the conversation. And I can see from your faces as well, ladies, that you're feeling a lot more comfortable perhaps talking about this once we've gone through a lot of the stigma, the taboos, the misconceptions, and getting into the mind of somebody from what I've seen from clients, right? You become more comfortable and then you have more confidence in terms of understanding, well, this is not as strange as we thought, especially when you look at it from the Islamic perspective with the tiny little bits that I've shared with you today, there's a whole world universe of knowledge and research in this area that's yet to be tapped into, right? From 1400 years ago. 
It's so exciting to think about that because we see modern science now, how evolved, so to speak, they've become and how much research and they've proven so many things that the Quran from 1400 years ago has already proven in the Quran, subhanAllah. Beautiful. Same thing here when it comes to taking care of the nafs, taking care of the self. This is the language that our parents and our grandparents understand. When you talk about the nafs, the self, the soul, is described in the Quran in the three phases, the three parts or elements. It talks about nafs al-mutma'inna, the self that has come to that place of peace, right? Nafs al-ammara, the one that is struggling. Nafs al-ammara al-mutma'inna, and I always forget the third one. And I <laughs> totally... Something slips out, right? Yeah. But the three parts of the self that is always in flux, always struggle, always the should have, could have, would have, the part that's like, oh, I should do this, I should go there. The part of the self, of the jihad of the self, right? The struggle yeah. of the self. We always experience that. How many times a day, right? So this is, again, all about that balance within ourself. We use that language. Our parents understand that language. Our, our elders understand that language, right? And also when you have that discussion with somebody with faith, you understand, like you're always in that struggle to get to that place of inner peace, right? That the amada that's always telling you don't don't do this or do bad or this this and that, right? So it's it's beautiful to see that, but it's also important to understand, like you're saying, education. So you educate yourself, become more comfortable, then you become ambassadors for mental health within your own community, especially our diverse communities. It's a language you become comfortable with. Once you have that in place, this is how prevention works. Yeah. This is how people who are having self-doubts, who are having negative thoughts, who are having very harmful thoughts can feel safe coming, talking to you or somebody in their center, reaching out because they feel that they're not going to get judgment because, okay, yeah, these folks get it. Or I know where I can go get help, whether it's the Nasiha or Muslim Youth Helpline in the UK or Okay, Brack mentioned Anissa. I'm going to go DM her. Shout out to Anissa. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's, all, there's other uh, online Skype counselors. This is just the one I know personally. So, there's so much research. I mean, so much resource out there. If only you just go and look for it as well. And this, so for somebody who's listening, who is not sure what to do, contact us or go online. And if you're dealing with somebody who you don't know how to help them, there's so much out there online that can help you, guide you as well. So especially in this day and age, touch of a button, all our answers are there, you know, just ask Sheikh uh, Google Stani, you know, (laughs) you provided so many resources, Barak, and these are resources that we are going to list in our episode uh, show notes, because we never just want to end the conversation. We always want to make sure that we do provide help for people who are listening. You know what I mean? It's super important. So thank you so much for listing the ones that you have. I never even knew there was such a thing as mental health first aid. No, I want to do that with you. Yeah, I I feel like that's something we should do. It is something that's really important because in high school, I was taught CPR, but why not being taught? this maybe yeah. it wasn't available when i was in high school i'm not going to age myself but it probably <laughs> wasn't but it's just interesting to me where how far we have gone when it yeah. comes to resources and the research that we've done so i will provide all these things and it's just it's i just want to emphasize the point that there is support out there there is help out there there's people who love you care for you and support you and mashallah look how much you care for your clients and the people that you are helping it's just like you have this connection with them it's not just this i'm your therapist let's get this over with no yeah. you really do connect with them and you build upon Michelle, that's everything awesome. that you're doing and that's important for those people who are interested in going into this line of work a little tip here is be careful of how much you take on as well because when you take on the heaviness of people that can impact you as well it's very important for self-care and that's how we have that in our work like self-care supervision and learning how to set boundaries for yourself as well if you're somebody who cares and wants to get into this line of work, it's important to to do that as well. 
but also understand that you know we do, we truly we do care for our fellow human beings people who get into this line of work it's not about the money it's heavy hard work it truly is about caring for other people because it's not easy work so for for those people who are struggling and you're saying, oh, what's the point of going to a counselor? They don't really care. It's just their job. No, we don't just get into this because it's a job. It's because we truly do care about other people and want them to succeed in their life emotionally, spiritually, physically, and be the best that they can and contribute meaningfully to society. And I applaud you for doing this work because I know that it's not easy work. That's the reason I couldn't I couldn't complete my degree in psychology because I would go home every day and and I was taking that stress from what I was learning in classes and like holding it within me. And it got to the point where my mom was like, you need to, you can't do this anymore. Like it's really tough. And I applaud those people who do put their, who sacrifice their life and give their lives to helping others. It's amazing. Yeah. I I want a community to put a lot of importance on Mm -hmm. um, these degrees and these career routes. They're not the traditional ones that our parents are used to, but this is what's necessary right now. And so Penelon, glad that you're you know serving god by serving his creations by helping him and like you found your passion you found your passion barak and that's beautiful that's the thing that's the thing we have to encourage our young people you have to find something that excites you that makes you very passionate about it like finding your mission in life and yes from an islamic perspective it is to worship god we know that right but what is that worship define worship is how Give back to, to to humanity, to yourself, serving yourself in this dunya for your akhira. You're planting the seeds in your dunya for your akhira. So you got to find something that is meaningful for you, for your growth, for yourself, spiritual development, right? And I, and I do find this work is incredibly rewarding that way. It's beautiful, and 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 getting a chance, you know, time and time again to do these kind of the work, whether it's podcasts, TV programs, documentaries, specifically talking about this. Again, it's about demystifying, breaking those taboos understanding rather than just going off the misconceptions, right? Because it's so beautiful in the end. It truly is when you were working with the the heart, the soul, the spirit, and especially when you connect it to God, it, it is about, like you said, serving inshallah and inshallah be accepted. And I encourage my brothers and sisters, you know, to learn more about this, anything really. Like when there's something that is confusing, that's making you feel off, listen to that gut feeling. Learn more about this. If mental health makes you feel a little off, then you know what? Go learn about it. (laughs) You won't be feeling that way after. The mental illness. I think when somebody has mental illness, we shouldn't detach ourselves from people who have mental illness. We should humanize them and realize that these are still our sisters, our brothers, and we should still take care of them. And I think it's beautiful, all the resources that you provided, Mm -hmm. all the contexts that you have shared. I think this is a step in the right direction. And honestly, this isn't a topic that Zane and I just thought of out of thin air, but this is something that we've been constantly messaged about. Can you talk? talk about suicide can you talk yeah so I did not know there was such a need for this it was new to me I didn't know that it was such an epidemic in our own community to be honest every then you start thinking about this topic and all of a sudden you hear all these news stories within our community of how many kids are passing away from or you know yeah yeah, suicide it's it's hard it's really hard so this is a necessary conversation I truly hope that you can one day make it to Chicago in some type of workshop oh that'd be amazing I would love to see you in person I would love it there's a lot of organizations in Chicago this can definitely be done we have to work something out definitely because alhamdulillah a lot, majority of also our listeners we have a lot of listeners from Canada as well so it's just it's beautiful we need to continue spreading this knowledge and it's people like you who are doing all this work so thank you from the bottom of our hearts for talking about something I so heavy serve. and somebody yeah it's a topic nobody really wants to talk about but it, it needs to be done Absolutely. we have to be more of a preventative instead of just reacting 
we need to just shift away from that. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Like our prophet said. (laughs) One last thing, where can our listeners and our supporters find you? I know you're on social media and if there are any other handles and if you want to list your handles, that would be really helpful. We'll also list them um, in our, yeah, we'll link them in our notes. So on Facebook, the Muslim counselor on Instagram, the Muslim counselor as well. And on uh, Instagram, Barack Hussein, uh, Twitter as well, but I'm not really Twitter savvy. No Twitter <laughs> fingers. Yeah, no Twitter fingers. Yeah, don't know how to tweet. Very well. Yeah, but you can find you can find there. Uh, but there's also the Muslim Counselor at gmail.com. So just to put it out there, I will not be able to do private counseling, but you can definitely contact me if you have a question or a situation in which I can then potentially refer you and advise you. And for those who are interested in doing lectures and weekend retreats and, and anything like that, I'm at your service to do that in your center, in your community. That's how we get the conversation started and continuing to do the preventative work. I, I want to thank you because as soon as I reached out to you, you were very welcoming and you really are wanted to talk about this conversation. So I feel like it's just you could tell in your heart that this is something super important to you and super dear to you. So thank you because a lot of people it's hard to reach out to somebody and want to talk about this conversation yes, so yeah. thank you for being so accessible um, again we'll link all of your social media handles if somebody's listening right now your Instagram is going to be Barak which is B-E-R-A-K and then Hussein, which is H-U-S-S-A-I-N because I know some people might want to just jump on social media right now because even though you do not provide private counseling your videos are very informa- yes, informational are. I learned a lot yes, from your Instagram TV and your um, post and then you also list a lot of your events that you will be attending so that also is helpful so thank you for all this thank you Barak for this conversation don't forget YouTube as well I forgot about that from the different TV channels that I work with you'll find a lot of uh, different topics anything from depression anxiety suicide abuse all of these topics are explored in detail for each one so that's also another resource for folks if they want to access YouTube is definitely helpful we'll definitely link that too as well I don't know how we forgot about YouTube (laughs) almost it's hilarious because I'm always on YouTube but thank you so much Barak inshallah you continue having the strength to do this work inshallah Inshallah allows you to remain in good health and succeed in this because you're helping so many people so you are definitely needed thank you thank Thank you you so much much. thank you thank you ladies This episode was very beneficial. I feel it to everybody, those who have seen a therapist before and those who have never seen a therapist before. And we don't want to always just push therapy on somebody. I just want people to be more self-aware of what they're going through. And I think because of this COVID crisis, and I've seen this on the internet, somebody said something like, we feel like now we are living our life without a purpose because majority of us are tied to the things that we used to do every single day from our jobs to our hobbies, you know, hobbies that require us to be outside, to be socializing with other people. And just even, yeah, being with other people physically, it's like, it's hard now. And it's, you feel like, what is life? What's going on? So you're getting, you're feeling more down and just the unknowns and the what ifs and what's going to happen after this is all said and done. You know, it's, it's crazy that my work has to send out an email every week saying, Hey, we don't know when you guys will be allowed back in the building. Like it's still up in the air. And for a big corporation to still not have those answers, it's, it's terrifying. And I remember a month ago or three weeks ago when this first started happening, if you go back and listen to that episode, you see like the optimism in my voice. I was like, Oh yeah. Like go out, like go get a hobby, like learn a language. Like I was like, you know, and and now being at home for three weeks, I'm part-time at home, part-time out in the field, but still having that part-time at home 
it is getting to me. It's it's lonely. It's just like me and my husband at home. That's it. And so that's why we did start incorporating FaceTime and Zoom calls every night after we eat dinner because you do need that interaction with other people. And like I, like Dunia was saying, that even people who have never had any type of mental health illness are going through things. So check up on your friends that you're worried about, but also check up on the friends that you're not so concerned about because they might need your help as well. Oh, that's a good point because I think we all think that everybody's doing good. And you know what? We're all coping in different ways. So if somebody's posting a selfie of them smiling or them doing a bunch of things with their kids and you think, oh my God, I'm so jealous. Look, they're, they're, they're you know, doing things during this quarantine and whatever and they're enjoying themselves. No, maybe they're coping with in this way so they don't have to deal with what's going on inside of their mind, the mental chatter, the, the depression that's going on within them. So I feel like people that do a lot sometimes on social media are trying that's their way of coping and showing themselves or trying to fool themselves like I'm okay I'm okay I'm okay but really sometimes when you go to bed at night and you're all alone with your thoughts I think that's when really that depression anxiety hits so sometimes just sending a friendly text to your friends is just all that they need just to know that you're thinking of them I I love that I love it's such a good warm fuzzy feeling to for somebody to send me a text saying I'm thinking of you like ever since I talked about my dad and what he's going through it's been hard at the at the home and whatever I mean we're dealing with it and he's doing better alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah but i've had so many friends like reach out to me every day like asking me how is he doing and i sit back and i'm like man like if this isn't a blessing in itself to have people that care about you wallah it's such a beautiful thing and I, I absolutely love that and i think it's so cool how you jumped on zoom with your like family your cousin you know what i mean that's, yeah we that's would be a three hour conversation and and that three hours would have been just spent with my husband and i watching tv if exactly. we did it you know what i mean and and I think it's good to have, inter- as much as I love my husband, you still need to interact with other people. Like you, you still need to, because honestly, like if it was just me and him, it would just be bickering all the time. You know what I mean? That's like, everybody, you need, really. You need other people in your life and they might need you in a way that you don't even realize. Absolutely. And I just think that, like I said, you know, make sure you check up on yourself, check up on your family and friends. This is a hard time for everybody, but there's always a silver lining in everything. Ramadan is right around the corner. We definitely have a very positive episode for you guys next week, all about tips and how to get ready for Ramadan. That's something that we should look forward to. It's going to be a different Ramadan, but it's still going to be a really, really good one, inshallah. Inshallah. So thank you guys. Thank you so much for all the reviews you've been giving us. Wallah, it means the world to us. And as always- Especially right now, we need a little positivity. Yeah, definitely. So thank you guys. And we'll check you guys out next week, inshallah. Bye.